Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. May the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. In his epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, St. Paul tells his hearers, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed unto the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of, unto the throne of grace, and we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus, he says, was tempted in every way that we were. And although we know that Jesus faced other temptations, for example, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In today's gospel reading, we see Jesus was, in fact, tempted in every way that we are. And Jesus' temptation in the desert all, it contained all the temptations we face as human beings. But you protest, I've never been tempted to throw myself off a tall building to prove that God would catch me. But I, sure, I assure you that you have been tempted in such a way. But we need to get something out of the way first. Temptation is not sin. If it was, then Christ would never have allowed himself to be tempted. Instead, temptation leads us to sin, but it, 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 it in and of itself is not sin. If temptation were sin, then the devil or others could make us sin without our ability to stop it. If temptation were sin, then Christ would have sinned. And as St. Paul just told us, Jesus was tempted but did not sin. So now to the things that tempt us. First are the temptations of the flesh. In today's gospel, that is Satan's temptation of Christ by asking him, if thou would be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. You could ask, what temptation would Jesus have been falling into by turning those stones into bread? I mean, he was profoundly hungry. In fact, the Greek is emphatic that Jesus did not eat anything at all during those 40 days. Well, there isn't really anything wrong with making some bread if you're hungry. The issue is how the devil put it, if thou be the Son of God. The temptation is about coming to what the body needs in the wrong way. Eating is vital to our survival. But if we either eat to a, a, a gluttonous end or we starve ourselves harmfully, in that way we would be committing a sin. Our bodies likewise have natural sexual desires. If we use them rightly in the context of marriage, then there's no sin. But if we misuse sex for our personal satisfaction or in a way that merely objectifies another person, then we have given into a temptation of the flesh. Rest is critical for our bodies and part of the reason that God in his wisdom established the Sabbath. But if we're slothful by failing to respond to opportunities for growth, service, or sacrifice, then we have yet again given into a temptation of our flesh by wrongly applying our true need for rest and distorting it into something harmful to ourselves and our neighbor. 
Additionally, it's important to say that in no way do we believe that the flesh itself is evil or bad. Instead, we're merely talking about the way it can deceive us. We are absolutely not dualists who believe in a wonderful, happy, tiptoeing through the cloud spiritual world in which we are disembodied cherubs in heaven and argue that our bodies are useless and worse evil. Nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, thoughts like those are the basis of many a heresy. For example, the early Gnostic heresies in the church. From an orthodox perspective, we believe that our Lord Jesus Christ took on everything that it means to be a human being, and that includes our very bodies. We know that God is good, so good, so good, that we cannot even conceive of it. And we know that he can have nothing to do with anything that's evil. So by the very fact that he took on our flesh, we know it is not inherently evil. The second are the temptations of the world. In today's gospel, that's Satan's temptation of Christ by taking him up to the pinnacle of the temple and saying, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee and their hands. They shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. What would be the motive of this temptation? It's a temptation to vanity, a sinful form of pride where one takes credit instead of God for our talents and abilities. When we boast, exaggerate, or draw attention to ourselves, particularly in this case, when we spend too much energy on our appearances, hear the vanity of manifesting oneself gloriously to others to attract attention. Pride has many angles, but as you can see, vanity is a worldly-oriented form of pride. And if Jesus was to follow through on the devil's temptation, he would be engaging in other worldly forms of pride, such as presumption and arrogance. The devil here is tempting Jesus using the words of Psalm 90, which we just heard is the tract. And we've heard bits and pieces of in, our, um, in the proper of the Mass today. The, these, the words there do not specifically refer to the Messiah, even though we can and often should read the Psalms through that lens. And furthermore, the words definitely do not refer to a rash person jumping down from the top of the temple, but rather God's protection of the just man following the path of virtue. And that way, of course, they do describe Jesus the Messiah. Because as we see at the end of the gospel passage, because Jesus acts here as the just man, as demonstrated through his successes over the temptations of the devil, angels do indeed come and minister to him. We can see how the world tempts us to vanity, arrogance, snobbery, but it also tempts us to other worldly sins, anger, because we resent our circumstances in this life, which may lead us to be unwilling to face up to difficulties or sacrifices. It leads us to try to escape from reality through the overuse of alcohol or drugs or excessive fantasy and daydreaming. The world also too often tempts us to envy, which can lead us to covetousness, theft, or lying. Again, there is a place for the good forms of many of the things I just talked about. For example, righteous anger at the harm others are suffering a recognition of our work to cultivate our God-given talents, and the fact that ideally we should have the resources to be functional in our society 
because that will hopefully provide us the means to be mentally and physically able to better serve God and our neighbor. And that brings us to the third of the temptations, those of the devil. What does that even mean? Aren't the deceits of the devil just those of the flesh and the world we've already seen? Well, not exactly. In the third temptation, the devil takes Jesus up onto an exceedingly high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and says, all these things will I give thee if thou will fall down, fall down and worship me. Yes, the devil again appeals to pride but here the pride is about the glory due God. It isn't about owning all that stuff, although if Jesus were uh, to give in to that temptation, he would at least temporarily have that stuff. It's really about the glory of them. That's the temptation that the devil offers him. But that glory is God's right alone. And this is underscored by the devil making it clear that the way to receive the glory is by falling down and worshiping him. Temptations of the devil are not, so to speak, the devil tempting us to take part in the sins of the flesh and the world, but to take part in his sin, to take part in his rebellion against God. And yes, as in many cases, a both and exists. If we go back to the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus responds by saying, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And here we've been talking about our own temptations, but apparently it's possible to tempt God. What does it mean to tempt God? Well, tempting God is creating a situation in which God must prove himself with a sign. It's asking God to prove himself, to prove that he's faithful to us. If you think about that for a moment, I'm sure you'll begin to see the circularity of reasoning that comes from such a test. Faithfulness is a kind of trust, and trust is built on a foundation of trustworthiness. However, Jesus knows that God is faithful. That's our job, to believe God is faithful. God is faithful. We, we don't need to put him to the test. And so Jesus doesn't need any evidence of this, because Jesus is also faithful and trusting of God already. Another example where those tempted failed themselves by tempting God was during the exodus at Manasseh when the Israelites grumbled. So like when we're in morning prayer during the, se during the penitential seasons, in fact, we talk about this in Psalm 95 that we read. It says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their hearts, for they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. So that's referring to this episode in Exodus at Manasseh, where the Israelites grumble against the Lord because they are camping at a place where there's no water. And because they don't trust Moses and moreover God, they say, quote, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? They obviously needed God to intervene. 
just as Jesus needed God to survive his fast in the desert. But instead of trusting in God, who had led them out there, who had saved them from Pharaoh, they doubted and supposed that God had abandoned them. And I note that Jesus did not just up and decide to go out in the desert. He was led by the Spirit of God, it says. And so just like the Israelites were, were led into the desert by God, Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus had chosen to take the devil up on the temptation, he would have been committing the same sin the Israelites did in the desert at Manasseh. Instead, Jesus is victorious where the Israelites failed in the desert. Sometimes we say that Jesus accomplished in the desert in 40 days and 40 nights what the Israelites couldn't accomplish in 40 years. So we see the temptations of the flesh, the world, and the devil in today's gospel. And in them, we see all the sins that we can commit. And we see that Jesus indeed was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So how can we succeed as he did? We're led by the church, the embodiment of Christ in the world, to a 40-day fast ourselves. We're being led into the desert by the Spirit. We are not seeking temptation, but spiritual strength. But as in the case of Jesus, it's likely we will face temptations during this season. Indeed, Satan loves to come when we are at our best. After all, he doesn't need to help us to sin if we're already committed to it without his help. It's when we're battling him that he's likely to come to tempt us. So we have three countermeasures to temptation that the Lord taught us, and we repeatedly, repeatedly emphasize here at the Advent, and especially during Lent. Our first spiritual countermeasure, fasting, targets the temptations of the flesh. One of the reasons that fasting is such a powerful spiritual discipline is that it tends to tame many of our other fleshly passions. It helps to calm our consumerist urges. It helps us to focus on exactly what Jesus said, that man does not live on bread alone. Yet in the fallen world, our bodies have become disordered, with the healthy needs and motivations sometimes overwhelming us. It can happen at any time, even when we're fasting. And this is important for us to remember during Lent. Fasting is a task to put us back on the narrow road. Most of the time, we've been on the outer shoulder of a sharp curve, going a little or maybe a lot too fast. Lent is a time for us to get back in our lane. However, we can also overcorrect, becoming pharisaical in our approach. And this can lead us into conflict with our neighbors who are driving on the other side of the road, on the inner lane. Or it could even take us off the road on the other side. So keep yourself focused on yourself and don't oversteer. There are many ways that fasting can call us to sin more rather than less during this Lenten season. We can hurt our bodies. We can become angry at ourselves or others who seem not to be, quote unquote, following the fast. And perhaps worst of all, we can become prideful over our own successes. Our second spiritual countermeasure, almsgiving, targets the temptations of the world. Almsgiving is not just about handing out money. It's giving up some of everything you've been blessed with. 
Perhaps you are blessed with money and possessions, then of course, certainly share that. But perhaps you're blessed with a sound mind that you can share with someone in mental anguish. Perhaps you're blessed with happiness that you can share with someone who is down. Perhaps you are blessed with time that you can use to lend a helping hand. When our cup runneth over, we need to be sure that we have a way to divert those rushing rivers to those who need it and don't just keep the excess for ourselves or worse, let it go to waste. It doesn't have to be uh, some, you don't have to help someone across the world or even across town. No, as I, you often hear me say, there may be someone sitting right next to you that needs your alms, so to speak. And it starts at home with your family, your friends, and your coworkers. If you need a place to start, that's a great place to start. Not with some charity you find on the internet, although there's a place for that. Just start right with those you interact with on a daily basis. And our third and final spiritual countermeasure, prayer, targets the temptations of the devil. Prayer builds our confidence in God and our trust in his faithfulness. Prayer is an opportunity to commune directly with our loving and personal God. Trust requires relationship. And if we're not continually participating in that relationship with God through prayer, is it any wonder that we have little faith that God is faithful to us? Or worse, we wonder if he's even there? In addition to prayer, our Lord tells us to search the scriptures. And our prayerful contemplation of them will show us how God again and again has been faithful to his people and all mankind since the very moment of creation. Throughout the, today's story in the gospel, we see, though, how Satan himself uses the words of Scripture against Jesus. But because Jesus has prayerfully, in communion with the Spirit, contemplated the Scriptures, he has the right interpretation of them and is able to counter Satan with the same Scriptures. So, as we have just begun our Lenten journey, anticipate that you will be tempted as Christ was in the desert by the deceits, the temptations of the flesh, the world, and the devil. And remember your spiritual countermeasures. Practice them daily, fasting, prayer, prayerful contemplation of the scriptures, and almsgiving. And you will overcome as our Lord did, taking up your cross and following him on this Lenten road to Jerusalem, to Gethsemane, and to Golgotha, where you too will be victorious over all that corrupts the flesh, our world, and our relationship with our loving God. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.